0: Hello, and welcome to episode six of the ED Govcast. I am joined by
1: Gareth Davis, Lee Barney.
0: and of course, I am Helen Bates. And here we are recording episode six, which about five minutes ago felt like it was an impossibility as we were struggling with wires into Gareth's fancy little box that records us. But also, Gareth, great news this week that we are actually featuring in a chart. For downloads for our podcast,
2: I was uh, mining my own business looking at the Apple podcast charts and saw ED GovCast at 55. That's in the top 100, obviously in the medicine category for podcasts, but my son was well impressed. So, what, what, what's going on this month, then, Helen?
0: Well, as always, there have been some cases presented and datexes reviewed, which are our incident report. Mechanism. So we've picked up quite a few things through those cases that we wanted to discuss. What we're we going to kick off with, Gareth,
2: this month, as we did in one of the recent episodes, we're going to call somebody. We're going to get a call into the podcast, and one of our specialty doctors, Aleem, who is pretty savvy with the ultrasound. Savvy.
0: He's immense Immense, yes he's, yeah. one,
2: he's one of those guys That if he doesn't have An ultrasound probe in his hand Then he's not He's not having a good day
1: No, he really is uh, Out of this world With his ultrasound skills Isn't he? And he had a in a great case That uh, he picked up Great diagnosis With the ultrasound So why don't we get into it? <laughs>
2: Right, so we're going to move on to a really exciting case that one of our specialty doctors, Halim, uh, came across working in the emergency department. And we're lucky enough to be joined by Halim um, via a phone call to the podcast. Halim, are
3: you there? Uh, yes. Hi, um, Gareth. How are you doing? I'm
2: very well. How are you?
3: <laughs> I'm, I'm good. And, and, and thank you for the kind invitation to join you today. No problem. I think you are
2: the second person to be interviewed remotely on the podcast. So I'm hoping this will continue to be a theme. But I know we would just love for you to talk about ultrasound in the context of your clinical case that you came across.
3: So over to you, Helene. I was involved in the management of this case as as supervising um one of our trainees doing lung ultrasound for an elderly chap coming with a trivial chest trauma. Uh, He's, I believe, he was eighty four. Um, examination chest X-ray apparently normal. Examination nothing interesting. Uh, No external um evidence of injuries. Observations are normal, Uh, and the only um thing was pain, which was managed with some painkillers, and. On supervising this scan, um, me and one of uh, our e, uh, EM consultants, there was no sliding on the right hemi-thorax. Um And the ultrasound um, showed uh, absent lung sliding anteriorly and a lung point uh, on the mid axillary line pointing to about a moderate sized pneumothorax. Uh, despite uh, the examination was nothing interesting and actually apparently looking normal.
2: Very interesting, isn't it? Because some of us don't really have loads of experience with chest ultrasound. Helen, you've got your hand up there. What what do you make of what uh, Halim is talking about?
0: I was just going to ask Halim to explain the lung point. I think I can work out in my head what it is, but just for the other people who channel me as a means of asking the stupid questions. Uh, Halim, just remind us what a lung point is.
3: Okay, uh, basically the lung point is um, um, a point uh, um, on the chest wall with ultrasound where you can see part of the pleural line is a sliding and the other part, uh, there's no lung sliding. And and this physiologically representing the um, a point where the collapsed lung touching the chest wall um, and the rest, the non sliding part, is in Indicative of the pneumothorax, um, and it is one hundred percent specific for pneumothorax. Like if you're scanning someone and um, you manage to find um, area was no lung sliding, and ending up scanning more, finding a lung point, there is one hundred percent specificity for a pneumothorax.
2: That is incredible, isn't it? Because if you think about a chest X-ray, Aileen, what what is the spe- specificity for a chest X-ray then?
3: Um, the overall dag- diagnostic accuracy of uh, chest x-ray uh, in pneumothorax ranging between um 50 55 and 75 and um Yes, sometimes. I have seen few cases. And in the last two years, I have seen two cases with moderate pneumothorax, with apparently normal looking x-ray. And and one was formally reported as no pneumothorax.
0: Can I just say, this is when I hate medicine, because something which I thought was pretty standard, a chest x-ray, it's a normal chest x-ray. Therefore, there is no pneumothorax. I don't think I personally had appreciated that the sensitivity for chest x-ray for a pneumothorax could potentially be that low.
2: Absolutely. And, and also in the context of silver trauma, Lee.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I can't remember if you said, Halim, actually how this patient presented. Um, did they Did they present as a primary attendance to the emergency department? with an injury or was it was it some other form of attendance
3: um for um chest trauma the last previous day coming to any the next day complaining of some chest pain and pointing to a trauma to the right side of the body uh, no external injuries on on assessment uh, but in the context of his age he was 84 uh, he, he was perfectly fine from all the perspective of physical exam observations x-ray everything but Still, the question about cerebral trauma and whether the CT scan or the first modality should be done in the first place or not?
1: Yeah, I mean this is a classic uh, elderly elderly trauma case, really, isn't it? Uh, certainly, in our department, the most common causes of major trauma or the most common injuries found in major trauma patients are chest injuries and head injuries in the elderly. And we certainly know from there's been an ARCHEM safety alert uh, about four years ago now, and there was a Tan report a couple of years before that analyzing patterns of Silver trauma, trauma, uh, major trauma in older patients, and most of those patients have fallen from a standing height, as as in this case, and many of those patients present with seemingly. Trivial trauma, or the trauma is associated with other medical presentations, typically a collapse query cause type presentation. Uh, so you, we, as clinicians, have to have an, a high index of suspicion uh, for significant trauma, and uh, and as you found in this case, uh, uh, you know, a pneumothorax in an elderly patient like this is a is a very clinically significant injury. And we've spoken about the um, uh, the imaging modalities that might be used. And we really need to be quite careful about chest x-rays uh, for the reasons discussed. Obviously, the primary imaging modality is going to be CT, but you highlight a great reason for why point of care ultrasound and lung ultrasound in this case was was very valuable.
2: Absolutely, and I think um, certainly, as a, for example, as a bunch of consultants, um, there's going to be variance in practice. So we need people like you, Helene, to sort of spear us on to get that ultrasound gel out. So thank you very much uh, for being our remote guest, um, and I'm hope to have you on again, Helene.
3: Uh, thank you, Gareth. My my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone.
0: Take care. Bye. Thanks, Helene. Bye. And we're now going to talk about extroversation, Gareth.
2: Oh, that sounds really exciting. It
0: does. (laughs) It's one of
2: my favourite things, extroversation.
0: I I don't think I would have believed before the governance meeting that we could have talked about it for quite as long as you did on the governance meeting.
2: Well, look, uh, the only reason I wanted to bring it up this month is because, unfortunately, we did have a patient, uh, relatively recent, um, who presented at they did actually present it in cardiac arrest. We did get a ROSC. Um, and as you might imagine, we were using uh, adrenaline to keep their circulation going. Um, and we used IV adrenaline um, through a peripheral line, which which we've been told we can do. Um, but in this case, unfortunately, the, there was some extravasation, which uh, led to the patient needing um, some surgery for compartment syndrome down the line. So I think it's just really important for us to just think about it and just maybe just talk about what we might do next
0: time. Or, you know, there are some guidelines, Helen. There are. We've got a trust... Um guideline on this it is quite a lengthy uh, guideline partly because it lists the antidotes to all the different drugs um, that we might use but actually Lee you had a quick look through it didn't you and you decided that actually there was probably only six or seven drugs on the list that we commonly use in the emergency department Um, I don't know whether you want to just mention those now
1: yeah, that's right, yeah. I mean, I, I always remember fentolamine as the antidote, but it seems that's not the case to most of them. That's, the, that's only good for vasopressors. I just like the sound of that drug. Fentolamine.
2: Fentolamine. Yeah.
0: The okay. other one being, I can't say it. <laughs> I'm going to have to look at it and go for it. Hyaluronidase.
2: Oh, oh, don't you put that on your eggs?
0: Well, a lot of women will put hyaluronic acid on their face because oh, yes. it's a good moisturiser.
2: It's hollandaise sauce I was thinking of. Hollandaise yes. sauce. Hollandaise. <laughs> we don't use that.
0: Um, and interestingly, also we were lo- we were laughing because um, there's first and second line um, temperature control, uh, and everything seemed to be go warm first, and if that didn't work, go, cold. go for cold. It sort of covers all the bases, really, doesn't it? <laughs>
1: um, but this gets some orders to this conversation. What uh, are there any risks okay. that
2: may lead to extravasation, Helen?
0: So I believe um, that the state of the vein that you put the cannula into is obviously key to whether they're going to extravate. I can't even say it. Extra Extrophosate or not. Um, so we were thinking earlier about the smaller, older people who have got very wiggly veins um, or the veins that are just difficult to sort of hold in one place when you're cannulating. Clearly, if you're an IV drug user, uh, your veins are already at risk from um, sclerosis and things yeah. like that. So... uh would a, a nightmare to get a line
2: in. Anyway. put my head in my hand every time I see that patient on on, on the screen because I know that at some point either me or someone else is going to have to go and get an ultrasound out yeah. and cannulate them.
0: The, f- the few times that I do get an ultrasound machine out. Um, more and more now? I will be. And then there's other patient factors like you you described the case was of a, a patient in cardiac arrest. Now, you know, if you've got um, a Lucas device or what I know as the thumper uh, in place then often arms are strapped to that or at least it's making a lot of commotion. So, you know, cannulism in that situation are put in under pressure, there's lots of movement going on, and also your own um ability to detect whether I think fluid is going through a cannula is difficult because the only your own adrenaline surge that you've got may may cause you to push a syringe a bit more firmly than you normally would. And so trying to detect that extravasation, I think, is just difficult. Uh, Those were the risks that I could remember from what we discussed earlier. Were there any others?
2: Also, just to mention here is that do you need to put that line in? Because I don't know about you, but I see a lot of patients, ambulatory patients who have intravenous in who probably don't need them. I know there's a sort of onus on the nursing team to get the efficiency up to get things done from from the get-go. But a lot of these patients don't need IV uh, cannulas. And I think there's always a temptation if you have IV access to give medicines IV, for example, paracetamol. And clearly that then, just by having it in your arm, increases the risk of extravasation. So that would be my sort of thought top tip there. Is just think about
1: whether you need it or not. And I think if if you have got the cannula, then you just need to make sure that it's in the right place before you use it. So, you know, as you said, this case was great. as a cardiac arrest case. And I've certainly seen lots of lines go in in cardiac arrest and they they come out subsequently. And obviously in this case, uh, sadly, there was a significant side effect from that event. But... Once we've got a patient in the ED that we need to give some medications through to, then we need to make sure that that cannula is secure, it's working okay. So flush it with three to five mils of saline beforehand. Have a good look at the skin around the cannula site. Be sure that the line is in situ before you carry on to give some drugs through it.
0: So what are the signs, Gareth? What might a patient report to you?
2: Well, pain. Pain. Would be one indicator. Clearly, if they're unconscious, they're not going to be able to tell you that there's pain. But certainly, things like redness, erythema, edema, signs. Obviously, things like necrosis and and signs of increased pressure in the in a compartment, so compartment syndrome. Um, and I always remember those as the, the P's. You know, pain, um, pallor, pulselessness. Just that would be obviously the sort of end of the algorithm if you if you get the compartment syndrome
1: and treatment there's a good little flow chart isn't there in the yep. um, in the guideline here the key thing is obviously to stop injecting uh, what you're injecting in so so always have sight of the uh, the area around the cannula when you're administering the medication if it becomes difficult to flush uh, in the medication if you can see any sign of extravasation then stop immediately what you're doing disconnect the iv from the cannula and if you can aspirate any residual drug or blood from the cannula now uh, the next point really we think requires you to then make a risk assessment as to what was the drug that was being administered and do i need to pre- do i need to apply any antidotal treatment uh, rather than just whipping the cannula out if you need to provide an antidote then you need to administer that down the line so at this stage we would say stop Make sure that you inform your seniors and sometimes it's necessary to speak with other personnel in the hospital outside of the department to make a decision about what the next step is. The guideline that we've referred to, once you get down to the bottom, you can see a long list of medications uh, that could be associated with significant risk. Um, But for some some medications, you're going to need to apply an antidote down the cannula and the main one is uh, hyaluronidase. And occasionally, uh, the other antidote is phentolamine, which is a vasodilator and is mainly used for vasoconstricting drugs such as adrenaline or phenylephrine. Oh, well, I, th- I think the, the bottom line here is that
2: yes, these things happen. Just know that there, there are local and national guidelines available to follow. And, and hopefully, we can get on top of it early and, and just prevent the sort of the, the dire complications from that may occur. <laughs>
0: So let's move on now to our clinical cases. And we're going to talk about, take a deep breath, everybody,
2: chronic liver disease. Oh, yes, I remember that learning. I I spent months and months trying to figure out all the clinical signs for chronic liver disease. Lee, do you remember all that? Yeah, I remember learning about them. When you do your general examination and you count the spider nevi.
0: I think the difficulty with liver disease is that they tend to be actually really sick Mm. and really difficult to manage because the liver is in charge of so many functions within the body. Uh, And what I remember is just being very scared when a jaundice patient came in who had any signs of bleeding because you knew immediately that this was going to be a really tricky case to manage. Mm.
2: Yeah, and, and I guess the point of being able to identify signs of chronic liver disease then sort of ups the ante for you if you can risk uh, score them, you know, if if they're having a GI bleed, but they've also got um, jaundice, ascites, spider nevi, then you know that they've got chronic liver disease. Therefore, they may have varices. And we know varices um, definitely ups the ante when you've got a GI bleed because th- those can be torrential bleeds and, mm. and patients can arrest right in front of you. So, you know, knowing these signs absolutely key when, when managing these patients, Lee.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think the liver is a bit like the nuclear power plant of the body and uh, definitely affects lots of different uh, functions within the body. And of course, as well as the bleeding, because of its role in the immune system, then you can get pretty horribly sick with sepsis, can't you? Yeah. And, uh, and I think that was part of the challenge in this case, wasn't it, Gareth? So the case that we, we explored was a, a 42-year-old female who uh, was brought in because the, the husband
2: had noticed that she was becoming acutely confused.
0: And seemed to have missed the fact that she was jaundiced and it had to be sort of pointed out through the history that our PA uh, Mel took that, um, that she had developed jaundice and that seemed to have happened over the last few days. I think the other difficulty with this case was that the patient was confused and so was not able to give a clear history as to what had happened to her over the last few days and the husband wasn't able to give any collateral history. Um, So I think the team were really working on the back foot in terms of trying to include all their differentials and treat those differentials.
1: That's often the case, isn't it, with these patients with chronic liver disease when they start to get sick. You often get quite insidious, sort of insidious development of symptoms, but those symptoms can often be quite, general type symptoms. And um, and I think this, this lady had had a bit of a dry cough, been a little bit breathless, eating and drinking less, and was just reported to be generally unwell. But, you know, knowing what we know now and uh, being aware that this lady uh, had underlying chronic liver disease, um, it concerns me that she was increasingly confused because, you know, you worry about hepatic encephalopathy and that's actually a sign of somebody who's pretty sick with their liver disease, isn't, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. And and she went on to have some normal blood tests that we did to reveal some alarming numbers. So we had a CRP of 346. Um, she had a, a urea of 27.4 and a creatinine of 447. Um, bilirubin was 228, Helen. So that explains the colour first.
0: <laughs> that explains mm. her jaundice because obviously, I, I can't remember what the figure is actually from your medical school days, Gareth. Can you remember? I can't remember what oh, bilirubin is. it 40 that you then suddenly appear? I think below 50. Jaundice. jaundice. Like
2: that. So 228 is massive.
1: And, and interestingly, looking at those bloods as well, Gareth, you can see that her coagulation is pretty prolonged, isn't it? The platelet counts are low. So you know that the synthetic function of the liver is not working properly. The liver is packing up here. Uh, you know, this this lady was not in a good state at this time.
2: And interestingly, they sent off for an ammonia. Now, mm. I believe that you have to put that on ice and, and it has to go to the lab within 10 minutes. Yeah, you sure do. Yeah. Yeah. So that's not something we do very often.
1: But I don't think the, the number doesn't correlate with much. I recall that... Um, having a high ammonia you know just tells you that something's not right but the apps the number doesn't correlate with severity and it's quite a faff to send that ammonia test off you got to put it on ice as you say so uh, there are other tests that you'd probably prioritize a bit more highly
0: and the priorities for treatment so we've been talking a lot about the signs and symptoms i think we discussed that one of the priorities is, is getting the sepsis six mm-hmm. done because we know that they're at more risk of infection and certainly some of those bloods and some of her presenting symptoms would have definitely ticked the sepsis 6 box. Managing her coagulopathy, that must have been very difficult for the team. And I know she ended up on ITU uh, because that was the level of treatment that she needed.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's mostly supportive treatment, isn't it? But you need really... Good supportive critical care here, and there are some easy wins as you say with good sepsis management.
2: There's a there's a good bundle by the British Association for the Study of the Liver, um, and they call that decompensated cirrhosis care bundle what we should be doing in the first 24 hours. So as you might imagine, um, things like investigations, so getting all all the usual investigations, so your full blood count, liver function, you know your clotting, etc., um, and then thinking about uh, whether they need an acidic tap. Useful if we're suspecting that for a spontaneous. Bacterial peritonitis, um, which clearly uh, we need to get on and treat. If the cause of their chronic liver disease is alcohol, then clearly things like IV Pabronex are useful uh, and calculating a CY score. Uh, infections, so as we mentioned, get on and do the sepsis six. Um, thinking about acute kidney injury. Um and GI bleeding also in Um, so things like lactulose is useful.
1: Do you remember why? Do you remember why they uh, want them to have lactulose? Go on. To do with. Oh, I was hoping you knew.
0: It was to. Do, it's to do with clearance, oh. isn't it, through it's the to, GI tract? Yeah, no. It's to get rid. It's to get
1: rid of bacteria from the GI tract because right. you get. They reckon you get translocation of bacteria.
2: Um, cool. So, um, just thinking about how we, at what point we sort of define or think about decompensated cirrhosis. What what are, the, what are some of the signs there, Helen?
0: So the signs would be jaundice, tick, increasing ascites. So they noticed that this lady's abdomen was distended, but unfortunately because of the lack of history there was no knowing as to whether she normally had a bit of ascites or not. Hepatic encephalopathy, renal impairment, GI bleeding and the signs of sepsis.
1: Needed an ultrasound.
0: She did. Think, um,
1: if only Halib was around to do. It. Yeah, even I could have done that. Yeah,
0: and then precipitants. Just so we cover those: GI bleeding, which we've mentioned, infection or sepsis, alcoholic hepatitis. Again, I was I was saying earlier. So I remember being a PRHO in. Um, GI medicine and actually taking an alcohol history is really important. And trying to use um, standard measures, so units of alcohol, is important because um, I think there was a history in this lady that she drank some alcohol, but the the representation was not that it was a large volume. But obviously, everybody's individual um, measures and wine glasses or tumblers um, are different. So it's useful to think about alcohol um, and beware of the patient that reports that they don't drink alcohol at the moment, because I remember seeing a very sick lady with, an, with a hepatic encephalopathy when I was a student, who in the history, uh, the husband had given no alcohol, but actually she'd been a massive alcohol drinker up until getting flu about four days ago and then had stopped drinking. Um, so those are important. Um, acute portal vein thrombosis. Definitely need an ultrasound for that. Hepatocellular carcinoma, drugs, so alcohol, opiates and NSAIDs. Never forget paracetamol in these things. Always think about paracetamol. Ischemic liver injury, so that can be sepsis or hypertension, dehydration and constipation. Which... We're going to talk about quite a tricky case now, not in that the that subject matter was tricky, but I think the management of the patient was difficult. So, Gareth, do you want to tell us a bit about the case and then we can yeah. air our views?
2: Yeah, I wasn't actually directly involved, but I heard about this case on the grapevine, as you do. This was a, a 19-year-old female who presented with some recent sort of viral symptoms. But on the day of her admission to ED, she was had an acute confusional state. In fact, she was quite agitated and quite combative. Um, there was some complaining of a headache, some vomiting, neck stiffness, and and some photophobia, coupled with fever. So looking back, it quite clearly is a case of meningitis, and that's where you should go with that patient. Um, But the problems that the clinical team had was that the fact that she was so combative just led to difficulties in managing her. Um, And I think she had quite a lot of doses of of benzodiazepines to manage her in the department. And I think there was certainly... her length of stay was increased. She, I think she was in department for over 10 hours um, trying to manage her, her agitation.
0: I think, as you say, we obviously at the governance meeting look back at these with the retrospectoscope, which is a wonderful thing. But I can also remember being a reg and even as a consultant, these patients coming in and whilst afterwards it's very clear to everybody what was going on, what the course of treatment should have been. They seem to be sort of a time sucker, don't they, in terms of you're trying to, deal with something and then you're trying to get a cannula but actually she's compatible. so you try a bit of benzodiazepine and then you're still trying to get the cannula in you think you better involve some other people you're not going to get her through the CT scanner so you're absolutely right the time in which she spent in the department uh, was very far from ideal Um, but equally I, I, I do remember these cases and being involved in them and just wondering where the time went whilst you were trying to line up all your treatments and get everything done for patients.
2: I think the key, as you say, is you, need, you know what you need to give to this patient. You know what they need. They need a line. They need bloods. They need IV antibiotics. They need steroids. But if you can't do that because they're trying to fight you or, or they're trying to do all sorts of stuff because they're combative, just, as you say, it takes steals the time away
1: from you uh, and things can, hours can progress trying to, trying to achieve that. Mm. Yeah, I agree. The time really does go flying by when you're task-focused sometimes. But I think we do need to be mindful of that, don't we? And, you know, perhaps when we do sort of put our head above the parapet and realize that time has got on we almost need to step back you know in, you undoubtedly will have lots of other people involved in this type of case with you and sometimes as the as the person leading the case from the emergency department and perhaps the, the specialist that's working with you leading the case sometimes those two people or three people need to stand back and just just sort of reevaluate where are we in the time course of the management of this patient what are the overriding priorities? Because all of these treatments that are happening, they're all needed, but you've got to prioritise what's, what's the most important thing to do next. And it sounds like this was a really challenging case. really. Yeah, I,
2: I, I think I've said this before with previous cases. Um, it's, it's getting that clinical consensus. It's getting other people in the room. Mm. And as you say, if you get task-focused, you forget that other specialties might be able to help you. Mm. For example, the intensivists um, or, the, or the acute physicians.
0: I think what's interesting to me is that if the diagnosis, the top diagnosis maybe had been different. So, for instance, if this um, person had presented with the potential for a head injury and therefore your CT scan was at the top of your list for investigations that you wanted performing, I think many of us would have had no hesitation in including our itu anaesthetic colleagues in order to perform an rsi in order to safely get that patient round to ct but the need for iv antibiotics and a subsequent ct and then an lp didn't seem to be given that same priority and therefore it was more about managing her and trying to keep her safe uh, under the use of benzos rather than thinking actually I just need to get a cannula and some antibiotics into this person. And that is as important as other investigations like a CT head. I need some help. We need to control this situation and we need to get those things done.
2: Yeah. So why don't we remind ourselves how we actually manage these patients with bacterial meningitis? Leaf.
0: Steroids. When do you give steroids, Lee?
1: Thanks for that, Helen. Um... <laughs> I thought it was antibiotics. Antibiotics. (laughs) antibiotics
0: (laughs) It is antibiotics. antibiotics. But the steroid question always raises its head, doesn't it, about when you give them the steroids? Yeah,
1: it certainly does. And uh, there are some good guidelines out there, aren't there? There's the Meningitis Research Foundation uh, that has been involved for many years in trying to improve the management of, of these patients since before the vaccine days, really. And they've collaborated with ARCA and the Intensive Care Society, the neurologists and the Society of Acute Medicine to produce some guidelines. Now, certainly, if you suspect meningitis, you need to give antibiotics early. And I'm sure that all hospitals will have um, micro guide type systems that describe the antibiotics. And it's it's usually a cephalosporin, isn't it? I think a third generation cephalosporin like Keftriaxin, that you give. But in certain circumstances, you should give steroids as well dexamethasone being the steroid of choice and uh, you, it's probably easier to decide describe when you wouldn't give the steroids. So you wouldn't give steroids uh, if there were signs of shock and, or severe sepsis or signs suggesting um, uh, brain herniation. Um, and you shouldn't give the steroids, um, if it's more than 12 hours since the first dose of antibiotics have been given. I think that's right. Is that right?
0: With um, immunocompromised patients as well, okay. which I think is a little bit more tricky because that requires you to know something about the patient beforehand and what your interpretation of immunocompromised is.
2: Yeah, it's the same with the antibiotics. Um, as you said, we give a third-generation cephalosporin, but we'd also add amoxicillin in some situations, Helen. We-
0: Yep, so if you thought that they were at risk of listeria. Yeah, so you would think about giving some amoxicillin. So if the patient is greater than 65 years, years old, already on steroids, immunocompromised or pregnant, then consider listeria. And that's something that we certainly consider in paediatrics out there. Um, I forgot about the children. Yeah. <laughs> will, that was, that was clear have, from the meeting, Gareth. We do have a paediatric case coming up. We do. Um, so, yeah, so we would think about amoxicillin in those cases in children as well.
2: So the young and old. Yes. Young and old. Interesting in this case, though, mm. um, so the day, a day after this, all the clinical staff had to have some antibiotics. Why is that, Lee?
1: Mm, prophylaxis.
2: Oh, yes, the old prophylaxis. The I think in, the, in, these, in these scenarios, um, there is advice to contact trace and offer prophylaxis, and that's for healthcare professionals that are uh, involved in, in intubation, um, any generation of aerosols, and also lab work as well, generating aerosols.
0: And cipro is the first line, not rifampicin. Oh, oh. rifampicin is the one that makes your urine turn orange, isn't it? It
1: is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The that's what I remember is, about yeah. rifampicin. Well, it's
1: CPD every day for me. <laughs> Here we go.
0: Uh, but yeah, f- front line is cipro, and I would probably I'd be quite happy to take a dose of cipro if I thought I might be at risk of bacterial meningitis.
2: It's just one tablet, one dose. Yeah, that's it. It's a single. So five hundred milligrams stat.
0: Whereas rifampicin is twice a day for two days. So presumably that's why they moved to sorry I'm, I'm presuming that's a much more straightforward antibiotic regime isn't it so helpful to us that 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 cipro is the first line
2: so some really key learning points there just the basics for me how to manage people with meningitis so recognizing it so things like fever headache neck stiffness photosensitivity um, any sort of non-blanching rash thinking mentricoccal sepsis um, and then just thinking about clinical consensus how we manage these patients, particularly if they're agitated, involving other specialties, and then talk about contact tracing, so exposure to staff, so the use of um, prophylaxis.
0: And just remember the human factors, the time the time spent managing these things. Right, so we're going to bring things around to the paediatric section. I was not there last week for the governance meeting because it was half term. You're absent um,
2: with leave, I think.
0: Absent with leave. And we did discuss the fact that for your own mental health and well-being, you should not dial into meetings when you're on annual leave. So I didn't. And I drove my kids to Dorset instead. Um, So I haven't actually got the cases to present this time. uh, But Gareth, I think you're going to talk to us about Kawasaki disease.
2: Yeah. So I've seen quite a few over the years. I mean, when I say quite a few, I've seen about maybe two or three. So not many, many. But this patient came into our department And initially caused a little bit of confusion to me uh, because she had some sort of unusual signs um, and she was eight. Um, And for me, in hindsight, in my brain, um, Kawasaki usually presents when they're a bit younger. I had this sort of toddler face in my head. But this this young girl was eight. In hindsight, she had the classic symptoms. So she had some cracked lips. She had a, a widespread rash. Um, bilateral conjunctivitis, and she was complaining of some arthralgia. And as you might expect, her pew skull was quite high, so she had a fever, she was tachycardic, and she was just a bit restless. As I said, I think it was late on the in the shift. I was The diagnosis was initially a bit confusing because of the age of the patient, um, and the rash didn't quite make sense to me either. So I was thinking things like meningococcal meningitis, as you as you might want to in these patients. Things like um Stephen Johnson syndrome, for example. And and the PIMS PIMS T S that's cropped up a few times recently with with COVID. So how about you? Have you seen you must have seen loads of it?
0: Well, I don't know how many actual confirmed cases I've seen. I've referred loads of query Kawasaki disease to paediatrics, but I'm not sure how many of those were then proven to have this vasculitic disease. Um, but it's interesting that you were confused about what was going on with them, but your treatment principles were bang on, weren't they?
2: Yeah, I think in these scenarios, you'll have a child with uh, features of sepsis. Yep. They'll have a rash which may not be blanching. So the the onus is to treat them as if they have sepsis or even meningococcal sepsis, uh, which would be the first step in any sort of guideline in this patient. Um, Now, this is where it got a bit tricky for us because the issues came in for me because I don't know about you guys, but cannulating children always always is a bit of a nightmare sometimes. Uh, And this child, uh, I could not cannulate and I had to get some friends involved, like the paediatricians and the the anaesthetists. Um, so the the actual getting the drugs into them proved a little bit difficult. So we, we did, in fact, use IM antibiotics in the end, um, which which is definitely something we should be doing if we can't get IV access and we're worried about them being really unwell with infection.
1: So it sounds like, um, you know, again, just prioritising treatment. Your Your initial priority was to cover the patient for infection and... I'm a bit like Helen. I think that I've considered this diagnosis in a lot of children. Uh, I'm not sure how many I've actually, how many cases have actually seen confirmed. I think I've seen a couple of children who have had it in the past, and I've treated them for subsequent problems. Um, but again, it, it tend, it's sort of a secondary diagnosis in some ways for us in the emergency department, isn't it? You you need to treat the infection, which is probably more likely to be going on. But then we consider whether this diagnosis is occurring when you've got patients who've got a temperature for more than five days, I think is the criteria. And, um, and I think it's useful to have This is a condition where there's a whole load of diagnostic criteria that need to be met. Uh, And of course, this is a favourite of exam questions. But uh, as with a lot of conditions now, we've got some really good guidelines out there. And locally, we use the peer guidelines, don't we? And they have created a guideline for, uh, for Kawasaki disease. So I thought it would be useful just to look through that. Uh, you mentioned that your child was eight, uh, and that felt like they were a little bit older than you normally see. and And peer port report that it's um, it's most commonly seen in children between six months to five years. Um, as a reminder, it's a vasculitic condition, isn't it? It's the second most common vasculitic condition in children. And we worry about it because there's a chance that you can end up with coronary artery uh, complications. Um, so we really want to get on top of it early and yeah, treat Yeah, something
2: for... I remember when I did paediatrics. They'd, they'd get uh, probably at least one echo. I think they're supposed to have two echoes just to think about coronary artery aneurysms which sounds quite drastic, doesn't it, coronary artery aneurysms, but certainly, definitely,
1: this is something Kawasaki can cause, so that is the biggest concern there. Absolutely. Um, In terms of making the diagnosis and the definitions, uh, you, Gareth, you alluded to a few features, but essentially, uh, you've got a fever for greater than or equal to five days, plus four or five clinical features which are outlined, and you touched on some of those. Um, Alternatively, you've got a fever for less than five days, all five clinical features and persistently elevated inflammatory markers without an alternative cause. The clinical features being fever, cervical lymphadenopathy, oral changes. You mentioned that the child with cracked lips can include things like erythema of the lips and a strawberry tongue, a rash. Conjunct conjunctival injection. I think you mentioned, and sometimes you can get extremity changes as well, such as edema, erythema, uh, sometimes some desquamation.
2: Yeah, the skin peeling. I've seen that, um, but that that can that usually is a late sign. You may not see it in the acute phase. Um, but I think from all those clinical signs and symptoms, the fever for longer than five days is is for me is the sort of the key you know, if you hear that, or oh, they've had a fever for five days, then you should be thinking about Kawasaki's.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: And I think, Gareth, you had quite an interesting little chat, uh, which you can just abbreviate, uh, with Simon Struthers, who's one of our paediatric uh, ED colleagues. And because uh, you were talking about the treatment, which is IVIG and aspirin, and when those should be started.
2: Yes. So the bottom line is, yes, they need those treatments, but They really shouldn't be started in the emergency department. These are the kids we should be sorting out from the sort of IV access, getting antibiotics into them if we suspect sepsis, um, speaking to a pediatrician and then getting them to the appropriate ward. And then the pediatrician can crack on and start thinking about IVIG. Um, Aspirin as well. Um, I know we always don't want to give aspirin to children because we're, we're concerned about Ray syndrome. But these definitely need
1: aspirin in these in these cases. But most importantly, a cannula first, yeah, and you fell like the, the first hurdle. Basically, okay. basics. Lee, basics. Yeah. Good, good. <laughs> Best to get back to basics and practice. You know that
0: there is a um, vein finder. Did you use that uh, ultrasound? I mean, you. you I, Do I waste my time getting charitable bids for for nothing?
1: I don't know, Helen. What you can't, you cannot help some people, can you? You <laughs>
0: just need to get
2: the ultrasound out. That's all we need to be doing these days.
0: I think um, this case brings us nicely onto, and something that we also just wanted to mention on the podcast: measles yes. is on the rise, and you mentioned some symptoms there that actually are shared with measles, and mm. um, making all of these things <laughs> difficult to diagnose. So but I remember um,
2: measles are three C's.
0: Cough, conjunctivitis, conjunctivitis
2: and choriza. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's it.
0: Yeah. And highly contagious. Coplex spots, yes. But they and begin a with a K, don't a they? K. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so we know there there are localised uh, epidemics going on in the UK at the moment. So I think the West Midlands. Uh, London. And London. But so we're definitely anticipating a, a surge in cases locally. So it's important for us to, as healthcare professionals just to have an eye out for them. Because um, obviously we'll see a lot of children with, with papular rashes, um, but we need to just think about the other signs that, that the metals may have and also just make sure we're asking about the vaccination history.
1: And finally, another case of a child swallowing something. Yep. What happened, Ellen?
0: Well, this time think it was Gareth's case, wasn't was it? Ga- it? Oh, Gareth again. And it lit up WhatsApp because, as always, when things go to WhatsApp, the management is not straightforward or our colleagues aren't behaving in a way that we would expect. Um, so, Gareth, I think you had a child who had potentially, or sorry, a child that reported having swallowed two magnets.
2: Yeah, these were kind of little small little things that you get in sort of toys and, and things that they have around. Um, I think
0: they're commonly known as crafting magnets. They, magnets. The, the, the ball bearing ones, the yes.
2: tiny yeah, tiny ones. Oh. Yeah. Now the point was that um, there was two of them, mm. um, and, and we it's tricky. We got the history obviously from from the parents, and the patient was seen by one of our junior doctors, and and clearly the plan was to get some imaging to see exactly what had been swallowed and where they were in, in the digestive tract. And when we did the X-ray, we could see two foreign bodies. Now. The case has come up because there was a bit of um, confusion about what to do with this, and a bit of disagreement between us and some other specialties involved, um, which led to us sort of making sure we knew we were following the correct advice and guidelines. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that the the peer network summarises really well because there is absolutely, if you if you swallow two magnets, then there's a potential for the magnets to adhere the bowel, and that can lead to perforation and ischemia.
0: Yes, that's correct, Gareth. And um, management of these um, are to do an abdominal X-ray in order to, like you say, locate the position of the magnets. Um, And I think it's very difficult to look at the X-ray and understand whether the magnets are together in the um, gastrointestinal tract or whether they've got a bit of bowel stuck between them. So our peer guideline would have us um, discuss these cases with our pediatric surgical colleagues um, in how to manage them further. And I think you did speak to them, didn't you? What did they advise you to do?
2: Yeah the advice was to admit locally uh, even if they were completely asymptomatic. I think the confusion was that the there was a Royal College of Medicine guideline which talked about super strong magnet ingestion. Yep. Um but the peer say it doesn't matter what kind of magnet it is just treat it just presume it is a super strong because you may not know. Mm. and that's what in, in these children with no symptoms at all. Admit locally for observation. Clearly, if there is symptoms, only is abdominal pain, for example, these signs of obstruction or perforation, clearly needed urgent intervention by a pediatric surgeon.
0: I think these cases are really tricky, and obviously it goes alongside goes along with button battery ingestion, which is also very serious. So I think what we'd probably encourage everybody is to check out their local guidance uh, because each hospital should have some guidance now following the Archem safety uh, news flash about um, button batteries and magnets.
2: And in these patients, I always think, because we obviously see a lot of kids swallowing foreign bodies, you just have to think, can this cause our harm? Yeah. Because a 50 pence piece, if it goes past the esophagus into the small barrel, it's probably not going to cause any problems. But if you swallow uh, a magnet, two magnets, if you swallow uh, a button battery or or a sharp um, object, then obviously that may cause harm. So it ups the ante, and and, and this is why we have local (laughs) guidelines.
1: Well, Helen Gareth, it's been a really busy session today, hasn't it? We've covered lots of topics and I think it'd be great just to try and summarise what we've covered yep. with our key takeaway points. Okay. So let's go in reverse. We covered pediatric foreign body ingestion. Follow the guideline. Yep. Okay. To
0: the to the
1: letter.
2: That's like line of duty, isn't it? Yep. Letter of the law. Yep.
1: Very good, I think i th- can I just add one thing there, and that is I think some of these ingestions can be catastrophic. That's the difference for me. You know, swallow a coin, it's probably going to be fine, yeah, swallow a button battery or a magnet you there are, can be catastrophic consequences to that, so you you just need to be really aware of that and then make sure you follow the protocols clearly. excellent. Then I think we went through Kawasaki disease in children. Uh, what were the takeaways? Gareth, you need to be better at cannulating, I think. That was a key takeaway. That's a given. A given, yeah. Uh,
0: treat common things. So w- the presentation of Kawasaki is akin as- to sepsis, so treat for sepsis and then be clever and think about the other differentials later. Yeah, and
2: the key is fever beyond five days or fever for more than five days. That will lead
1: to a possibility of diagnosing this in in these children. Excellent. Thanks very much. Meningitis was next, wasn't it? We, we had a case of a uh, patient with a... Uh, Uh, septic from meningitis
2: yeah and and i think yeah we run down on on the basics of managing these patients Mm. but again like so many cases that we cover it's getting that clinical consensus because this wasn't straightforward we needed to think about sedation whether we needed to ventilate them for example to manage their diagnosis Uh, and and you shouldn't just isolate yourself and, and get other people involved
1: yeah absolutely it's making things happen isn't it and sometimes you need to stop pause have a bit of a conf lab with the other senior clinicians involved and make sure that you prioritise what the next step is correctly. Right, and then we we, we, look, we spoke about some adult cases and we had a, another elderly trauma case, didn't we? We had chest, a chest injury case.
2: Yeah, it was so great getting Halim involved,
1: Helen.
0: It was, and it's just another reason why I need to get that ultrasound machine out on the shop floor.
1: Yeah, that's right. So be super cautious of um, the diagnostic accuracy of chest x-rays in patients with pneumothoraces. Uh, Ultrasound has got um, superb sensitivity if you're comfortable with using it, so you can make use of that. And be really careful of uh, older patients who may have injuries. They often coexist with apparent medical presentations. Uh, CT is still the gold standard uh, investigation in those cases uh, with point-of-care ultrasound a role at the bedside in the correct hands. Uh, Good. And then there was a really interesting case, wasn't there, of decompensated liver disease. We highlighted the excellent bundle from uh, the liver branch of the British Society of Gastroenterology. Loads of steps to go through there. Um... And the liver, of course, is the nuclear power plant to the bloody. It is. <laughs> and finally, let's talk about extravasation. So we had a case, didn't we, of a, an extravasation. Um, not that common, but just be mindful of it, particularly in some of those resus type cases that we see in the ED. Uh, stop the infusion. Don't whip the cannula out. Consider if you need to administer an antidote. Uh, and it was like a facial cream, wasn't it? Hi, uh, Hi- hyaluronidase. Hyaluronidase. Yes. And occasionally pentolamine.
0: and I think this was a good uh, guideline for remembering not what the guideline says, but remembering that there is a guideline. And I think that, as a consultant, is sometimes what you have to fall back on because you're not FR chem ready anymore. Remembering all of these different antidotes and things, but knowing that there is a guideline is the key.
1: Well, that's a wrap. Episode 7 comes next month. March. March 2024, Gareth.
0: Can I you know. believe it, Helen? No. 2024.
2: What's it? Uh, March Mother's Day is the next thing. Yes. Followed by Easter.
0: Yeah, there we go. Good. good which, which I might also be away from.
2: <laughs> but no, absolutely. We we love making these podcasts. It takes uh, a bit of time getting this together. Um, but... Um, we really enjoy getting the message out there. So, And also, if anybody really wants to give us some feedback, we'd appreciate that. So certainly you can find us on all the social media channels and via email. See you next month. See you next month. See you next month.